Welcome to the spoiler cast for Rehydrate. As a warning, this episode will contain spoilers for all of the three-body problem, the dark forest, and death's end. If you don't want to be spoiled on future events, please skip this episode. This is Season 5, Episode 4, The Storyless Kingdom, where we will be discussing the second half of Part 2 of Death's End by Liu Sushin. Also today, we have a special interview guest with us, Priya. Priya, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Priya. I was in last week's episode talking spoiler-free, and now um, I'm excited to be able to talk about spoilers finally. (laughs) And my name is Talia, and I have also read all of the books in this series. Hey, this is Dan. I've also read the entire series. And unfortunately, Amin is running late today, so we're going to get started without him. But he uh, will hopefully join soon. So we're going to start with some follow-up. Uh, we did get some more emails uh, from Frank regarding the last episode, so I wanted to read it here. And, I, and he brings up some interesting points, and one thing I totally forgot, which I should have had. So he says, you briefly mentioned uh, the 2001 Space Odyssey movie in your latest episode. The space logistics description in the section where Changxin meets Yuan Tianming also reminds me of that movie, as well as Arthur C. Clarke's novel, 2001 Space Odyssey. The style of that section of Death's End is so like Clarke's, it's uncanny. In addition, I don't think you mentioned it in the podcast an even more explicit reference to 2001 in Death's End in the final 10 minutes before the droplets strike the Earth's gravitational wave antennas. Quote, then humanity appeared compared to the eons before mankind's history was but the blink of an eye. Dynasties and heirs exploded like fireworks. The bone club tossed into the air by an ape turned into a spaceship. So I had this in my notes and I totally forgot to mention it. I mean, 2001 is my favorite movie of all time. So, you know, like obviously it stuck out to me too. Like that's very obvious. And I mentioned, I meant to mention it, but just totally forgot. Yeah. We, I think we all know that like the, the assistant is very influenced by Arthur C. Clarke and Eisenhoff and all these uh, classical sci-fi writers. So the, definitely an homage there. <laughs> very explicit one. Mm-hmm. The second, the second point he makes is something that he brings up is say, I like the discussion regarding who Captain Longsail is supposed to represent. This Easter egg is not directly related, but I'd like to just point out that Guan Yifan is written as Guan in Chinese, uh, Yifan, where Yi means oh. one and Fa means sail. Extrapolate this all you would like to, given how the story ends, but I'd like to think this is a coincidence. So it is interesting that the character matches. Talia, you know this stuff better than I do. So I guess is that, is that shiny <laughs> I didn't realize light? it was that fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking it up. Yeah, it's the it literally has a little you know, dangling cloth on one side and then a radical that is used in all the boat words. So it's really like a, it's a sail. It's possible. I mean, since he does end up with a certain princess, maybe the wrong princess at the end, it's possible that it is a coincidence or it's not. I I always like when people point these out. So thank you, Frank. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I also saw a Reddit thread on that subject and i think like the two theories were that either it's just um the author kind of like winking to the fact that like that's who she ends up with because the sale is also connected to yun tianming because he like doesn't he go the solar sail yeah, yeah. The solar <laughs> sail right yeah so, mm. um it's sort of like a it's not intentional but then um someone also speculated like what if um yun tianming has reached a place or the Trisolarans have this ability where they can see time as not not in a linear way. Have you guys seen the movie Arrival where the aliens um, can see like 
time, yeah. like, you know, like the future, past, present, all at once. They can't influence it, but they can see it. So I thought that was an interesting um, idea. And now I don't know if I've like spoiled Arrival, but. Oh, no, that's all right. <laughs> well, you'd have, you'd have to be like in the dimension above seeing time non-linearly to actually be able to affect it, right? Like we can. So he couldn't do that from while remaining in 3D. Okay. That's my understanding currently. (laughs) If someone wants to enlighten me on true time travel, I am, you know, open to taking feedback. All right. So we'll just do a brief summary of what happened in this episode, just so we're all on the same page. Starts out with Trisolaris being destroyed. Changxin, Luoji, and Sofan meet again for the way of tea, and Sofan confirms that it's possible to broadcast a cosmic safety notice. Sofan interrupts Changxin's suicide attempt by saying that Yin Tianming would like to see her. And unable to provide any direct evidence on how to help humanity, Yun Tianming recounts a series of fairy tales that wrap up the answers in multi-level metaphors. And finally, humanity tries but gives up on trying to decipher the fairy tales and decides to embark on the Bunker era instead. So I know we have a lot of notes around the fairy tales, but is there anything we'd like to discuss outside of those before we get into that? Because, I mean, the the meat of this episode is going to be discussing that. But, you know, there is a fair amount that happens uh, ahead of that. So is there anything that you guys want to discuss? So, yeah, I think I was um, last in the um, spoiler-free episode, we were talking about um, or rather speculating why the Trisolarians are reluctant to give helpful information to the humans. Um, It seems that if they, if humans acquire, like, do we know where the Trisolarian ship is at this point relative to the solar system? Because it seems like the curvature propulsion lines could could become a problem for them potentially. And then it's also interesting to think of the Trislerans as having uh, recognized that maybe humans might want to seek vengeance upon them because they're the ones who kind of started this whole thing in a sense. Hmm. Um, so those were the two theories as to why the Trislerans might have been reluctant to give helpful information. I think it has to do with the fact that of what Guan Yifan reveals about galactic humans. And I think that might extend to all galactic species. And I think that is essentially what Trisolaris has already become at this point, is that the one thing they did not inherit and cannot learn is appreciation of life. And that any life that's out there in the cosmos, whether you believe it to be seeking vengeance or you're not sure if it's going to be benevolent or malicious, you just automatically have to distrust them. Yeah, that makes sense. There's also like one line in the book that says, um, I think it like it takes like five minutes in outer space in like a harsh situation for people to lose their humanity in a sense. So yeah, that Mm. makes sense too. Their trisolarity. Yeah, I wonder if they're just like afraid of giving even more information about their world was already destroyed by this this master race of of singer whoever and so maybe they're worried about like that that race also going after their fleet right because that's also a, a potential a threat for them in the, in the dark forest like they're not planetary species anymore they're over galactic species but they have light speed ships and that seems pretty dangerous so like having then that's why like they talk a lot about like the tristolarians like waited like like a year or two before they 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 entered light speed because they didn't want to have the trails anywhere close to their planet right just to not reveal themselves presumably they're going light speed right now and like leaving these big trails behind so maybe that's why they're reluctant to give any information but it is strange that the they they just did not get any of the they didn't pick up on any of the stuff that yun Ming was uh throwing down there yeah, it seems like yun Tianming has like very intimate knowledge of who 
singer is. And that seemed a bit odd to me. It seemed that he, I mean, because Needle Eye, like, uh, we'll get into that, but it seemed very much like Singer. But maybe he is referring, there There are likely multiple um, entities out there in outer space like Singer. Yeah. It's it's kind of, uh, uh, doesn't Singer kind of reveal that his civilization is not the one that destroyed Yeah, he Chrysler. sees it and it's already, yeah. it's already blown out. Yeah, so. he's about to destroy it and then he sees that it was already destroyed, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he sees, I, I think this is like the theory that's been pointed out on Reddit as well. Singer destroys neither Trisolaris nor Earth. Oh, really? He's not the one that... Mm-mm. We can talk about it in the Singer chapter. Oh, okay, maybe I misremember that. I thought he did flick the, the, the 2D foil. Wasn't him? It's elegant, but we'll discuss it in the in the Singer chapter. All right. I, I want to talk about this fairy tales. That's all I can say. They were by far the most interesting part of this chapter does everyone agree yeah but first it looks like amin has joined us so welcome amin thank you i apologize oh no problem so i had to add a question for amin before we we get started and amin you uh, you, you had accidentally read ahead i was wondering how far ahead you read for last episode I, I read through the end of part three or part four whatever the next one is across two different parts i read to the end of that part when, where does this part end? Where Chang-Ching goes back into hibernation, right? Yeah. Yeah, and she gives her company away. Uh, yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah I can see how you think that was a lot of reading. Because it is a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't follow directions well. <laughs> it is hard to split up the, the chapters in the middle. I, I, I will admit to that. Yeah, so, I mean, before we were just about to jump into the fairy tales, but did you have anything that you want to discuss? Or, I mean, I guess you know more than we do, <laughs> than, than we do for the episode, but is there anything you want to discuss before you just jump into the fairy tales? No, I, I want to talk about the fairy tales too. <laughs> great, great. Um, so I did a lot of research uh, ahead of this, but ahead of the main episode, and I kind of like split up like this the non-spoiler stuff into the main show and then the stuff I consider just spoilers into the, into the episode. And I had to play dumb a lot. So like when I'm, you know, you're listening to me on the main show, like I, I know a lot of these things. I'm just trying to like, not say that I know them. Uh, and then, and then like give Tim like more, um, information. Cause I already, I already felt like I kind of spoiled a little bit talking about how the fairy tales are more important than, than just cause like this, this episode ends with like, Oh, like fairy tales aren't important. Let's just build a bunker, right? But the fairy tales are extremely important um, going forward for a whole bunch of different reasons. So I, I was—that's why I was playing kind of dumb. But anyway, I, I have a couple. We can start with um, some things that I found on Reddit. We just talk through them. So the first one is a quote that I have here. So it says, "In summary, we have a princess in danger of being flattened travels to a land of the dead to find some entity stranded there who does not respect the 3D geometry. This entity is immune to flattening." At least, it's, at least as Needle Eye understands, and uses extraventional powers to defeat Needle Eye. I believe that these stories have a lot more in them and that Leo intentionally only hinted at, but may have held some secret to humanity's at least temporary survival. It, I go back and forth in my mind a lot, but like, you know, who is what, whatever. But I think a, a, the, one of the major ones is uh, Prince Deepwater, right? Who doesn't follow the perspective of time. Um, and I don't, I, maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's, maybe it's like the the, the ring because like the the interesting part is like in the ring, like when they come upon it, like it just like kind of pops in, right? So it doesn't really follow the same laws of dimensionality. And so a person in 3D, which is needle eye or 
someone is not able to attack someone in 4D, right? Because like people in lower dimensions aren't able to harm people in, in higher dimensions uh, unless they're brought back down to lower dimensions. So I, I have a question. So I thought some of the stuff in in these stories, like about people uh, being painted and being rolled up and all that, I to me that was, I, I guess... Was that an obvious connection to the three body problem game from the first from the first book, or do I know more than I should, and that's why it was kind of really um, obvious what they were trying to get at with these with these stories to me so because again, I have a terrible memory and I know more than I should. I wasn't sure if this was I, I guess how much of this is obvious to a first time reader and how much of this is is well constructed and well hidden from a first time reader. And, and I know all of you are way more familiar with the books than me. So maybe I'm asking the wrong crowd here. Oh, it's, we're not that much more familiar though. though. Like we're only a couple of chapters away. <laughs> uh, I'll say for me personally, I, I did not like, I knew that is important and I was like trying to like look for meanings, but I definitely didn't catch like the more, anything that was like not explained already. Like I didn't catch like any of the dimensionality stuff or light speed stuff or I think I didn't even make the connection to the 4D stuff at the time. So, but I do it's important. And that's why I like, I really like that how right after it, they like start deciphering it. I'm like, okay, cool. They're going to like tell us what the answers are, <laughs> which they do in, in some ways, but not, not totally. How, how about you, uh, Priya? Like, what, did you, did you understand the, like, did you catch more out of the fairy tales when you first read it? I think I ca- caught like, um, certain overarching like concepts like I, I knew it had to do something with like dimensionality but um I think on a reread I could um sort of clock more of the metaphors and draw more parallels to actually what comes before which is the part with the ring which is a lot of the language is evocative of that of that um, that whole passage with the ring and it makes me wonder if actually the Trislarans also came in contact with the ring at some point and asked it questions and had a similar conversation because mm. so much of it is kind of almost like borrowed from what the ring tells tells the human ships when they encounter it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah definitely on reread, same. It's like it, I think like there's so much that, that's revealed after the fair, like curvature propulsion and, and the 2D attacks and that kind of stuff. Like it, that kind of makes the the fairy tales more not obvious but like kind of reveals more about them uh when you read them the second time but i think the first time i I didn't get it so i think i mean like i don't think you're really meant to fully understand it the first time and that's why it's it's cool right like the humanity has to like collectively try to decipher them but humanity is kind of dumb and doesn't do it and just (laughs) goes back to what they know (laughs) you mean you you guys you couldn't tell it was curvature propulsion from like the get-go like (laughs) i couldn't tell you man (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah sorry i didn't mean to imply i got everything but at least the dimensionality stuff i thought was was very telegraphed and again i i guess i was maybe looking for that or for some reason it just yeah that one seemed way more obvious than any of the other ones to me. For myself, I definitely didn't take it as a metaphor for anything that was specifically unique to Earth. Just that this is a threat in the great universe and here are some things that we know about it and, you know, here are ways that it attacks and, you know, I'm enclosing some kind of solution. I definitely got that, but it was very fungible as to like any civilization um, that, you know, is not 
powerful enough to already know this. So I didn't see it as specifically mapping onto particular characters or specifically mapping onto Earth. And that was probably my, my first impression, which is also what I got from the ring. I have the idea that if they'd contacted any of those 4D ships, it would have told them all of this pretty, pretty identically. Although I think what I would say is that from the uh, passage with the ring and also the encounters with these 4D fragments, we're kind of um, almost on the lookout for anything to do with four dimensionality that we're not even really thinking about like two dimensionality. So like when you first read the paintings and things, you're trying to figure out what the painting is a metaphor for, but that's like the least metaphorical element (laughs) kind of literal so um you're not really trying to like you're trying to turn that into a metaphor when it's actually not and i was looking on reddit and i saw various interpretations that say that prince deepwater is actually already 2d the clue for that i can see that yeah the clue for that comes from um how singer's homeworld seemingly uh has deliberately turned to 2d or the way that he describes it, it seems like they made a decision to turn into 2D so that the mm. dimensionality effects would not impact them. So it seems like, um, and then the other clues when uh, Master Ethereal says he didn't teach Needle Eye the Eastern that style. That was the other painting. clue, yeah. Because it doesn't actually yeah, make I them mean, immune to this attack. It makes them immune to like a 2D attack, but not immune to a 1D attack. So yes, Eastern um, versus Western. Mm. And it also it lacks, uh, 2D lacks uh, depth perception i guess right so um i i the way that i saw it now after like going further into the book um which i had already done but then i reread certain parts later on and it seemed that let's say like light speed had not worked then he was proposing that as a as another avenue to explore another safety um mechanism although i feel like that's, that's such a it's such a long shot that he would yeah, think so that humans would figure out how to do how to turn themselves 2D before they could figure out light speed. So that doesn't make <laughs> a, a lot of sense. But I feel like he was just like trying to plant these seeds of thought into their minds. That's interesting. I, so I wonder, you know, if yeah, if if that is you know, one of the cosmic safety notices that he tries to. I mean, because I don't think that some people seem to think the umbrella represents the black domain, but I don't know. I don't, I don't... Yeah, let's talk about some features inside the story, like yeah. about the umbrella. So we have this umbrella made of bones with pebbles at the end. What were your thoughts? Yeah. So I, I think like, I mean, it's definitely important that it came from, uh, it came from the faraway land, the Harishigan, Moshigan. It comes from there and it doesn't work if you put foreign parts into it and it has to constantly spin, not too fast, but not too slow. So the one thing I found online was that it maybe is supposed to represent a black hole, which kind of makes sense with when they get to the maelstrom, right? For the next chapter. And you need the the constant, the the velocity to escape the event horizon of, of a black hole. I, I don't think it's supposed to represent a black domain, but it does protect them. So maybe, the, I mean, my main thing, I guess I, I think is that it's supposed to represent light speed, right? Um, and they're supposed to represent being able to get away fast enough and being able to accelerate out of, uh, you know, past the the velocity needed to get out of a black hole, which would be with light speed, right? So that's that's where I was coming from on that one. But I'm open to other interpretations because the umbrella is still kind of a mystery to me. I think a lot of these metaphors can simultaneously uh, represent 
different things and different concepts. So I think like one concept is obviously like motion, right? Constant motion. And the other, I think the clue that that tells me that it also has to do with the black domain though, is that um, it's made from an abyss dragon and the word abyss immediately puts in my mind the thought of like a a black hole or a black something, right? Like, so a black domain seems to be represented by the idea of it being made by an abyss dragon. Also the fact that an umbrella kind of covers you, it kind of shrouds you um, in, in, in like a shroud of protection. So, so that, that also made me think of what the function of the black domain is, but yeah, there's also that motion aspect of it. So, but all of these ideas are sort of related to each other. Like the black domain is a byproduct of light speed. So Yeah, and I wonder, like, why can't the umbrella protect more than one person? Like, why doesn't that work? Because sacrifices need to be made in fairy tales, Dan. That's why. Is that that what it? I mean, like, it's that seemed like too important to just be a fairy tale construction to me. Hmm. The fact that like Master Ethereal couldn't use it at the same time, like two people can't use the umbrella at the same time. Yeah, I put this in our notes about Master Ethereal because he reminded me of Luoji at the end. Because they both have this opportunity for survival, for extending their lives, and they both choose to give it away and choose to go out with dignity. They go out in a poetic, dark way on their own terms. So. Mm. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that that would be a good stand-in for Loji. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought the reason that it couldn't protect more than one person as at a time is sort of his way of saying potentially that you're not going to be able to get everyone or even the majority of people out this way because everyone else who kind of stays behind Mm. is going to be stuck there forever basically not that they're going to like if the safety notice works they're not going to be turned into 2d but there is this thought that like only a very very small number of people are going to be able to get out and i i don't think that it's I don't think that the one is necessarily supposed to mean one individual, but like a very small amount. But a very small. Yeah, I could buy that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So the next note I had was something that's like occurred to me like right after (laughs) we we recorded for last time is uh, Prince Longsail. I think it like it to me. It's supposed to represent Yun Tian Ming because like he literally sailed out of the the universe on on a sail, right? Like so. And he later makes his way to uh, to rescue Chengxin from the collapsing star. So I think that is supposed to represent him or himself. Or is it, sorry, not Prince Longsail, Captain Longsail, sorry. But yeah, like the sail thing, like, oh, yeah, of course. The, and I think we mentioned in the main show, like they kind of, they end up together, right? Um, and so like that's, and they're saying, he, they're, they're going off to faraway land. And like, you know, he knows that he's going to probably buy her this pocket universe once they, if they develop like these ships, right? So if the Trisolarians are so smart, wouldn't they catch on to all of these? <laughs> you know, there's a part of me that wanted to believe that um, he had struck some sort of a deal with the Trisolarians. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to want to share some stuff with her. But what if I make it so convoluted in this fairy tale? Then is it okay? Because like the Trisolarians did show some... Mm. willingness to share something with Loji, which was that, yes, a safety notice can be broadcast. We're just going to tell you yes, no, or maybe. 
uh, or I don't know. Um, and this is kind of the, the fairy tale, tale is kind of like the equivalent of that sort of a very vague answer to um, what as to what the solution is. But um, where that theory kind of falls apart is that that uh, Tian Ming starts the fairy tales by saying by making up the fact that um, Cheng Xin and he knew each other when they were kids. So that kind of like interferes with that theory of mine but it's like almost like he's like well if i if i tell it to her in a way that will be almost undecipherable can i tell her this story it could be has like a person on the inside too right like someone like the the listener from before who like who has who has a different mindset it wants to like have he wants to be save humanity and so maybe he's able to make friends with that person and you know say like i'm gonna tell them this fairy tale but it's actually gonna be this thing and then that's the person who reviews the transcript and says it's okay or or something yeah, or maybe the guy controlling like the light switches is a pacifist, you know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like the guy that controlling the light switches is is not right because like he they they immediately like tell him like even when they when they mention the meteorites. Yeah, but those are like more like very like on the nose kind of things, like yeah. giving away like secrets of like you know that paint a picture of trisolarian civilization to humans that they want, might not want revealed. But with everything else, he's probably like, eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like what it's it's the question is like, what's the real danger? Like we talked about before to Trisolaris of giving up this information and how much are they willing to to give out? Like, uh, you know, they said on, at the face of it, they gave out the cosmic safety notice thing because they have so much respect for the OG, even if it's like detrimental to the survival of Trisolarians, right? But maybe they think they're also being watched. They can develop so fonts are watching humans like maybe people they think like you know 40 creatures or 5d creatures are watching them and so they're trying to <laughs> make it look good or whatever oh that's interesting that's a good theory almost everything you said was over my head but it sounds <laughs> good <laughs> i'm just making it up i'm making uh yeah I'll, I'll i'll do the the next uh fan fiction book <laughs> about the politics of 5d uh, there is the idea that like um, higher dimension, higher dimensional beings don't really pose a threat to lower dimensional beings, and we realize that like Singer's yeah. civilization is originally three D too. He refers to all of them as low entropy entities. I don't know. Like it, the only threat in my mind would be like other three D beings after rereading the Singer chapter. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, they also. I mean, the Trisolarians probably also don't want to be two dimensionalized, right? If they, if someone right. flicked a two D foil at at their fleet, it would, you know, pretty quickly take it, take it, you know, two dimensionalized. I had a bit of a bone to pick with this whole theory about two dimensionalization. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if it belongs here. I'll probably bring it up again to gripe about it on the main show. But it's revealed later that the Earth and the solar system, rather we're two dimensionalized and that's a sign of respect, right? That this is like a higher, you know, a more deadly attack than a photoid, right? Was it respect or just out of, I mean, because they said like, ah, the photoid won't work. We can see the other planets. Yeah, block that's it. what yeah. my problem is. Because Guan Yifen is like, you know, that's a sign of respect in the universe. But then if you look at why, the reasons why, it's like, oh, actually, you know, they could build a bunker. So better just do plan B. Right. So I didn't really think that it was necessarily an indicator of respect um, yeah. rather just the geometry of the system but we can talk about that later because the fairy tales at least to me were really engaging like you talked about was i trying to read metaphors into them i thought my experience paralleled chung sheens i i tried but then they were just engaging on their own
Yeah, that was the same feeling I had during my first reading of it. When I went back and read it over again, I was like literally trying to find metaphors. But (laughs) when I first read it, I was kind of like every time I would start trying to find the metaphorical um, revelation in them, I would just be like, but it's more fun to actually read them as what they are because it it does have like this um enchanting quality to it that kind of takes you kind of um into almost a realm of like like uh like a like a fantasy world outside of like hard science fiction so it felt yeah. like what the constantinople chapter was trying to be like yes. it was very fun to read <laughs> you know yeah, I wasn't really into the constantinople chapter to be honest, but I was very into the fairy tales. Yeah, I remember that when I when I read it the first time, like I I read it, then finished the book, and then immediately I went back and read it again, <laughs> like the fairy tales <laughs> chapter again. And then after I finished reading that, I like then I listened to the audiobook version of the fairy tales. <laughs> it was like because like I think the coolest thing is that like I I knew I couldn't understand was how ha- I didn't know what all these metaphors meant or whatever, but I knew they meant something, and like that that and they meant something cool and scientific, right? And like the yeah. the combination of like fairy tales like that are wrapped in scientific metaphors is like they were like the perfect combination for my my reading brain yeah it's a winning combo and, and then that you know like i said on the many 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 times like this is by far my not by far but this is my favorite part of the of the whole series not that it goes downhill from here because there's a lot of cool stuff that happens after this too but like keep listening please i had never been as like yeah <laughs> i had never been like as like just like <laughs> mind blown uh, besides like reading this chapter <laughs> Or these yeah. three chapters. All right. Well, my next note is around Prince Isand. So this one, I think, is also. I still don't have a good answer for this one either. The main characteristics of Prince Isand is like that he's super brutal, just like lusting for power. So you know, coming from the perspective of Yuntian Ming, who has embedded himself with the Trisolarans, like maybe this is the singer race because like this person's always like looking to to destroy or that this race is always looking to just destroy stuff in the dark forest or maybe singer is needle eye. I think like, like Priya mentioned uh, and he's at the instrument of destruction. And this is the race that, that is directing him to do it. And maybe that the, the race that's, the, that's directing him is Sand. Maybe that was like, that's not really a spoiler thought, but that was just like my, my further thinking on, on the matter of like who Isand could represent. I think in the main show, everything said humanity or, or even Wade, but I think that's too, it's too small. Like it seems like it should be a bigger metaphor. I think it's um, just the hostility of the nature of dark forest of the dark forest. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's, it's almost like um, we see that even within these organisms, these beings that are just kind of um, set out or stationed in areas where they're, their job is to to um, put forth these strikes. There are individuals like Singer who aren't completely like heartless and like or just like programmed to kill because you see him singing songs and he's he's having thoughts and he's like actually intrigued by the communications that have taken place between Trisolaris and Earth. Uh, so and then and then it's it's the elder who comes in and cuts that line of thinking off and says no your job is just to um strike this civilization out and that's what you need to do um so i think that's sort of representative of ice sand that maybe there are all of these um like the lower the lower level um like employees or so aren't really <laughs> like like think like they might be interested and they might actually want to find out more about the civilizations that they're like you know stationed to strike out but it's higher orders dictate that they just need to 
destroy. And so that's what they're going to do. And so that's what I stand represented to me, I think. Another interesting thing that as I was reading further is how they they found when they're looking at like the when they found they um, the Trisolarians left the the lines the death lines behind them or the the light speed trails um, they said they had saw like a light speed trail just like a, like right outside the solar system so and, and it seems like these attacks happen really fast in 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 uh, in relation to uh, them getting the coordinates right so maybe these races are using light speed to get to those places or maybe even they but no one can see them ever maybe it's that or maybe they're actually like using like maybe they're actually like higher dimensional beings who can like pop in and out like of you know of these bubbles or can use them that was another thought i had as you know with with a little bit more more uh knowledge of the the book going forward because they seem like godlike, right? Like they're just like out there all the time and like just right on top of it. <laughs> so like they have to have more. It's, it seems like they have more ability in just light speed. So I, I have a tangential question. Well, I guess I have two tangential questions. So one is how many of these, how many of these do the humans solve? Like, and then secondly, when they solve them, does the author give an explanation of how they solved it? Or are they, is it kind of vague? Mm-hmm. Like, we're doing a lot of speculation here. So I'm just wondering, is, is nothing about any of this explained, like how they came to any of these conclusions? Um, like the umbrella, for example, I'm guessing that one, they never figure out what it means. <laughs> they actually do figure that out, like very definitively. And since it's Liu Shishin, he takes us through a pretty rigorous process to explain it. So the that umbrella? at least oh. can put to bed. Oh, yeah. If you, if you think the umbrella is light speed. Uh, coverage propulsion, I guess. Mm, no, it's no. I mean, the, it's representing this uh, motion regulator that's on steam engine trains from. Oh, the yeah, that, that part. And that's something that's a bit of a stretch, even for a common era person. You'd have to be kind of an enthusiast to know that. And <laughs> I mean, that's at least to my mind, very definitively solved. That always struck me as also kind of too specific, though. I don't know. It was brilliant. I thought yeah. it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It regulates a constant speed, and it points you in the direction of constant speed in any circumstances, and that's light. That, that all ties into, yeah, if if the, the umbrella is supposed to represent the black domain. Well, I don't think it's supposed to represent either specifically, because both plans of survival, you need to have a really good scientific understanding of how to manipulate light and light speed. And I think that's all that it's pointing you towards. There's also a lot of exposition at the end um, when uh, Ching Xin and AA are kind of flying off in the light speed ship um, where Loji kind of breaks down a lot of the, the concepts of, you know, uh, there's this really great line where he um, describes the black domain as a, as a noose where it's um, it's, it's mm, a threat. Yeah. If you're, if it's a threat, if you're dangling it in your hand, but it's uh, it's, it's, it's like a safety notice safety basically notice. If it's ar- around your own neck. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so too close and it's around your own neck and that makes you safe. Cause you know, and then if it's too far, then you're kind of like, you know, you're going to put it around other people. So, so I, th- I think the, the main answer, I mean, is that like, they're not, I don't think a lot of them are explicitly called out, but they kind of become obvious in context. I think later on, like definitely like the, 
the the painting pe- painting people the picture i think becomes obvious because the they two-dimensionalize the entire solar system and so like that's not a metaphor <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like that that kind of stuff i think becomes becomes obvious but the, the, he doesn't have like a checklist of like well this meant this thing and this meant that thing the, i think that's another reason why these are cool because they're not they're not just like spelled out for you. Like they're still up for interpretation. So we can do shows like this where we can still debate about like what, what means what or kind of make wild guesses. Uh, I mean, wasn't here for this part of our discussion, but we talked about why the Trisolarans might be hesitant to give the secret of this cosmic safety notice to humanity and humanity speculates, but you know, it would shroud us. It would make us you know, safe to the cosmos, we'd have to mutilate ourselves in some way. And even in Priya's example, they're saying, why won't they show us how to put a noose around our own neck? But if we think about the actual implications of making a black domain, Luoji explains, you need to have about 1000 light speed ships, all going in different directions, at, you know, very powerful ships, those are bound to interact and be more of a threat. So that there's a very reasonable explanation is like, well, maybe I don't want to arm my enemy with 1000 ships all going in different directions. It's never like laid out like, oh, well, this is what that metaphor meant. This is what that metaphor meant. But I think later on, like certain elements are brought back up, like um, curvature propulsion when um, Loji explains it. And then Ching Xin remembers her her sailboat experience, uh, experiments. And so yeah. some of the some of the elements become are unraveled that way for us. But it's never like uh, he doesn't go um, metaphor by metaphor to give us like a very clear cut explanation for what each metaphor stands for. And I think, I think he can't do that, right? Because each one seems to be doing a lot of work within the scope of the fairy tale oh, yeah. to kind of represent multiple concepts at once. So it would kind of almost be, I don't know, like over, o- over explaining everything. Maybe, maybe one day he'll really release his notes from when he was writing the book of like what, what things and be a uh, be interesting read there. Yeah, I think I think another one, like, like you mentioned, was the 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 boat, like that that that's a like the soap bubbles. I mean, that soap bubbles, but like the using the soap to to drive the boat that kind of like obviates like, uh, and and then also like how the um the boat like and it uses the soap to like leaves its wake with like the just like the light speed trails. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's a lot of like those things that that kind of that when you're reading them, I think another reason why the fairy tales are great, because like you read them, you'd be like, oh yeah, like in the fairy tale, like they, they left a wake of, you know, in their way. And like, it's also, I mean, I guess we can get into the soap now. The It's also interesting that it pacifies the, the, the I mean, I think pretty obviously the- Well, yeah, it slows yeah. things down. Yeah, is, is that, I think, oh, I didn't catch that. that. That's a good read. Yeah, anything that's left in your wake, like- their light speed is going to be slower. They're going to have to work a lot harder to get out. They're, I don't know if it's mutilated, but they're certainly pacified. Hmm. Hmm. I guess I was taking that as like, you know, something to do with the safety notice because it's like it's pacifying the dark forest. Mm. But yeah, that that makes sense. Like, yeah, maybe it's not maybe it's not so literal that like they're being pacified, but like like you said, they're they're in reduced light, so the they're, they're just pacified that way. And even when humanity starts testing or when anyone starts testing light speed, they run into a problem when they have curvature propulsion. It's like, well, we did this test and then the quantum computers nearby broke. So mm. like their technology level gets lowered if you're in the wake 
of these these tests. Like you, there are real consequences. Right, right. This is a bit out there, but another theory that I read on Reddit about the um, the soap is that it kind of evokes the feeling uh, that humans get when they find themselves in 4D space. Like they feel a lot of like, or rather they realize how they felt in 4D space once they come back down to 3D space and they start to feel claustrophobic and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And the, the soap gives them... A, a more comfortable feeling. So someone was like, yeah, the, the, the soap is also kind of referencing the feeling of 4D space. And of course, there's a theory that like he might be kind of signaling to them to seek refuge in 4D space, maybe. So yeah. that's where they were connecting the dots there with the soap. But if I can make a bit of a further leap, this uh, since we were trying to look for like clues about the pocket universes in the fairy tales, that's the only thing that seemed like it could be evocative of pocket universes to me, like the soap bubbles. Um, I know that it had, probably doesn't have anything to do with that. And, and also, we as the reader don't know at what point the Trislarans figure out how to make pocket universes. Yeah. So it's possible that at the point when Yun Tianming wrote or conceived of the story, they hadn't figured that out or even had that idea yet. So it's li- likely that it's not yeah. even in there. Yeah. But um, when I think of like multiverses, it seems like like multiple bubbles within like a membrane or whatever. So that's the only thing that evoked the idea of a, of a pocket universe to me, like a soap bubble. Hmm. Maybe the pocket universes are are the safety notice, right? Because like you're outside of the universe, then like maybe that's the only way to. I mean, obviously you can't fit a whole civilization in there, but like maybe the soap is saying like, oh yeah, like you're saying like all those bubbles represent pocket universes, uh, and they don't realize that the danger represents the universe at that time. But like maybe they're saying like, oh, you need to create a bunch of these pocket universes and you know store your people in there, and then that way they can't be attacked because they're outside of the universe, right? If they can't make a light speed ship, you think they can make universes? <laughs> Well, they could seek out people who could, right? So maybe like that's what they're saying. Like you need to, you need mm, to go across the sea to, see, to seek out these creatures that, because like obviously the Trisolarians are either in contact with them or with are are, are going are looking for them because they they kind of know about them somehow, right? Or maybe they don't, or who knows what the <laughs> the timing is. But like maybe they're saying like go by going across here, like you're creating all these bubbles with the pocket universes, and then that's how it pacifies the dark forest. So I have another question for people who haven't read everything so do they experience pocket universes in this book somewhere so yeah i assume they can't create them themselves but they must come across them no the the, they can't make it themselves but they do come across them like uh so basically yeah yun tian ming he he gives the gives chung xin a pocket universe to go into and like they're supposed to go in together but they they never do unfortunately but Shang-Chi does go in them. So yeah, we see them. And that's like, it's basically like the very end of the book. It's like the last like couple chapters of, of the book. And that's where she writes the um, the excerpts from uh, Pass Us Out of Time it's from Inside the Pocket Universe. I have a note for Amin, actually, um, since we talked about what's at the end of the book and we talked about Master Ethereum and how he, you know, goes into the painting and gives away his umbrella. And I was wondering if at this point when we're, pretty much closer to the end than we are to the beginning if you have any thoughts about the title that's end that title or yeah Mm -hmm. uh, i i think we i think we talked about this a long time ago but it's so it's that people are going to live forever Mm. that there is no 
nobody dies anymore. I think that's what we well, talked about. I haven't about. seen maybe anyone I... live forever yet, but yeah, maybe. Well, I, th- yeah. I think it's just the hibernation, right? Like, so like they yeah. mentioned it in the, in like the first episode or first couple chapters, like they talk about like hibernation being a means to death end, right? I mean, at, at the local scale, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you mean like a, like a universal death end or like, yeah, the, I, just, I guess like, how I mean, do you mean my it? Understanding, <laughs> my understanding of the meaning of death end definitely changed a lot especially towards the mm. end of this book. And I was wondering if Amin's had evolved yet. I, I suspect that it will by the end of the book. That's all I'll say. I don't think my head. I, that maybe like, unless you mean like the universe, like collapse or potentially collapsing mm-hmm. or not collapse or, or the heat death of the universe, like the, the choice between those two things. I don't know if Talia is thinking in the same line as I'm thinking. And I don't want to like inform means uh, interpretation (laughs) by revealing what I think but I think you're well at least I am not thinking of end as like the end of a thing like death's the end of death but rather the end being like like you know when you say a means to an end Mm -hmm. like what end means in that phrase that's how I'm thinking of end like death is more of a how should I explain this? <laughs> um, de- death. Imagine if death is like a character in the story, and the end that death brings unto the the story. Um, to me, that was kind of summed up in like how the planets are kind of flattened in the end. Huh. Or I think that was similar to me. Like so much of these books are driven by like our intense fear of mortality you know, the Trisolarans will come and attack us in the first book. And then all of the universe could attack us and we could die in the Dark Forest book. But by the end of this one, there's so much more exploration and so much enormity about the beauty and dignity of ending. Like the stars will end, but also this whole dimension will end. Hmm. Even if things are continuing to live and they found like eternal energy, like, we think that Luoji thinks that humanity has found eternal rechargeable energy. You could potentially find that and still that wouldn't save you. Your whole dimension could end. And even the universe itself, like maybe the zero dimensioners win. And I think they sort of obliterate the meaning of death by the end of this. Hmm. It's sublimely cathartic for me to read this book. Yeah, that was way more eloquent than what I was trying to get at. But I was I was having similar, similar thoughts to what you said. And there's also and I know that I'm like repeatedly encroaching into the um, Singer passage because I just love it so much. In the end, when Singer flicks the dual vector foil, he says that he liked the unyielding tenderness displayed by the dual vector foil, a kind of aesthetic that could turn death into a song. Mm-hmm. And that sort of is evocative of the title to me because it's kind of like death almost becomes a character and this is the end that death brings to an entire portion of the universe and ultimately maybe the whole universe, right? And then also death kind of becomes like obsolete once you have like traveled like billions of years into the future as a human being, even if you can die, right? You still have made it to the end of time in a sense. So it's like, Right. <laughs> Mortality doesn't really mean anything anymore. Yeah. Well, those are much smarter takes than I had. I thought it was just the hibernation thing. <laughs> but that that all makes total sense to me. Like I think those are those are the themes. Like 
I, I didn't like put them together explicitly. I think that that those explanations all very much make sense to me. Uh, so I only had a couple more notes uh, about the fairy tales themselves. So the one thing that that was missing was the mention of the star uh, of you know Yin Taeming's star that it gave Chengxin, and I couldn't like put something that directly like. I think he always had it in mind, like he says it right afterwards, the story, like that we, we should meet at our star, right? So he definitely had it in his mind. And then in the story, um, Captain Longsail and uh, Princess Dewdrop go off somewhere, and presumably that's to their star. Um, but I don't know where that somewhere is. Like, do you think that the star is represented in any of the, the metaphors here or, or not? I'm just thinking of this since you brought it up, but um, there's a moment and it's kind of a really beautiful moment. I think that whole conversation actually between um, Captain Longsail and Princess Dewdrop, where they're having their first conversation and he's kind of explaining um, that he's from Hershing and Millicent and just explaining things to her. There's uh, this moment where she asks him, um, can you see me? And he says, yes, I can see your eyes. There are stars in them. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's like a nod to the star possibly because he's kind of... Captain Longsail is kind of like Tianming and Dewdrop is Chengxin. So yeah, that 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 just now made me think of like a possible reference to the star that he gave her because he sees stars in her eyes. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's a good point. I just had a follow-up to something I heard on the main show. So since we are a week behind our schedule, I was able to listen luxuriously to the entire main show and give it some thought. <laughs> And what I heard was there was a fair amount of discussion of mapping characters onto other characters. Like, you know, is Prince Ice Sand Singer, is do- Princess Dewdrop Changshin, which is brought up like explicitly in the text. They say like the princess sounds a lot like you. So I'd like yeah. to present my controversial hot take on uh, which character actually symbolizes Changshin. My hot take was instead of Chongxin as Princess Dewdrop, her as Auntie Wide. Hmm. And I'm willing to back up that assertion. One of them is that she is capable of producing practical solutions, even if they don't always work. Auntie Wide is the one who's like, I have an iron from Hershing and Mosican. Let's iron out this snow wave paper. And it does work. It's not enough, but it does work. And Chongxin is a practical PhD, who came up with a staircase program. Um, Chengxin also says that she would hold up the umbrella herself, and Auntie Wide holds up the umbrella herself. Yeah, she says, I'm not that delicate. I can do it. (laughs) Exactly. Not that delicate. And also, there's a passage in the scene where Master Ethereum comes to the door and enlightens them and tells them, here's the nature of this attack, and you yourself are in danger, and there's no escape and like you can't run far enough away for this attack not to reach you. And Auntie Wide flung her arms around the princess as if she could keep her safe. And again and again, we've seen that that's Changshin's approach to humanity. She makes a stand on principle, even when there's no hope whatsoever. She throws away the button. She chooses to tell the halo group to stand down and not threaten all of civilization. She holds a baby in the UN. Like she's always flinging her arms around the princess as if she could keep her safe. And uh, if you have seen a production of Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet and the nurse are played by the same actor, it sort of reminded me of that. Like obviously expressing some more of these elegant, beautiful, 
princess-like qualities and then fluttering back to, nope, I'm super practical and I'm also full of care and affection. And I thought that was my hot take, which came to me in a dream after listening to the main show and is not something <laughs> I thought originally <laughs> whilst reading this, but I wanted to present that. I, I like it. That's yeah. I, so what is, uh, is, so in this theory, what is dewdrop? Dewdrop represents humanity, I guess, or supposed to? Just, yeah, something tender, something you want to keep safe, maybe human civilization, maybe parts of Chengxi herself. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And I, I think actually that seems like a very originally you thought actually, because I hadn't <laughs> come across that anywhere. Um, and I went on, down a deep rabbit hole in Reddit and like on not just Reddit, but like online and there was no such interpretation anywhere. But I really like that because um, that we constantly do see these two sides of, of Chengxin where she's mm-hmm. she has like this emotional side and that could be the dewdrop side. Um, but there's also this side that's practical and very um, resourceful. And, may, and it's almost like Tianmin kind of like presenting to her that these are, you know, that this is this is you and this is, you know, there are these two sides to you. And um, uh, in the end, um, what I did comment on in the original, um, in the spoiler free episode, which was that um, she we talked about how she says that I'm not so delicate. And I felt that like in even even if the interpretation is that she's just dewdrop, she's not just delicate because she has this this drive to kind of leave this world and um, to go and, you know, solve these problems. Even as dewdrop, she has that intention. So she never seemed weak or delicate to me, but combining her sort of with this auntie wide element um, kind of only only strengthens that metaphor of who she is. So I really like that. It was really interesting to me how um, the the concept and the idea of story is presented because normally when you think of a place that's story less as as a, as like a literary person or a person or, or, or when you romanticize the idea of literature and thoughts and ideas, you would think that stories are essential and stories are vital to a civilization. And I don't think that this fairy tale is debunking that idea in any sense. And I always go back to this this book that Salman Rushdie wrote for his uh, his son. Um, it's called Haroon and the Sea of Stories. And that explores, um, that's also a very fairy tale-like story that explores um, the idea of stories as being so essential to um, any civilization or any, any society. Um, and without stories, we're nothing. But um, it's very interesting that in the scope of this fairy tale and what it's saying is that not it's not necessarily that all of knowledge and all stories are are a good thing. Like some stories are conflict and the way that they're presented in this fairy tale is that when story comes to you, it can sometimes be in the form of a huge conflict. And it really makes you question like, is it better to kind of live in a sort of blissful state of ignorance or is it better to know about know everything that there is to know about the nature of the universe and the scope of the universe and it's kind of like what we right now as humanity are grappling with like it's kind of like within human nature to want to go further and further and further out in 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 seeking all the knowledge that there is to find but 
it's it's like the language around the way that stories are presented in this fairy tale is like we were better off when we when we were the storyless kingdom in a sense and then there is some pushback to that where yeah it it, kind of shows both sides that you know um I mean, yes, like ultimately when like you could ha- you could end up with a story that kind of flattens your whole universe and then that's not a good story to tell, right? <laughs> but it is a good story because that makes for like a really grandiose ending to um to this story. So, um yeah, these were just the thoughts that I had in my head around like stories. Yeah. Yeah, and they talk about it at the, at the end of it too that like the after that there was no more stories over again right they like isolated themselves and so like never had stories again yeah it seems like they they like that uh that state for whatever reason or they they make them feel comfortable anyway like they don't you know they like to be isolated and not not know not have other stories yeah which kind of would have been the a a, a good like positive a good for humanity type of ending if if they had been successful in broadcasting a safety notice and then if it had ended the way that the fairy tale ends which is that dewdrop and long sail go away and then they take all the remaining soap with them which means they've left the curvature propulsion lines and then no one else can ever escape again and then they live out the rest of their days in um blissful simplicity and um Shang-Shin does contemplate this in the end where she's like you know the people who wanted to leave would have gotten what they wanted if I hadn't put a halt to the light speed um project or whatever and the people who wanted to stay home and just live in this you know conflict-free world could have lived out their lives that way and everyone would have gotten what they wanted the two factions of people who wanted to stay could have stayed the people who wanted to leave could have left and it would have been fine thank you so much for joining us this week priya and thank you everyone for listening you can leave us comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on twitter at rehydrate pod please join us next episode for season five episode five fate's choice the second half of part three and all of part four of death's end by Liu Sushin. <laughs>